Thank you, Eric. A um, couple things before we, we get started. One, I forgot to mention that if you, if you could use prayer after the service, there'll be two people down by the organ here wearing lanyards that says prayer team. They'd be happy to pray with you after the service uh, and uphold you in that way if you need it. Second thing is, Ellen Osler Home is looking for people to uh, volunteer to paint a couple of bedrooms. So I was there yesterday, I painted one bedroom, uh, and I can just tell you, Ryan, you go have a look at it and you'll wanna hire me on the spot because it was awesome. But I don't know if I have time to do any more, but if you are interested in doing that, you can email me and then I will uh, connect you with them. They need at least one more bedroom done, hopefully before, by September 11, if possible. If you're interested in helping out in that way, let me know. Painting is awesome. If you're, a pers- if you're like me, you, you want instant gratification for your labor. And so painting just feeds that so wonderfully, right? You go in there, it looks terrible. A few hours later, it looks amazing. So uh, let me know. Now, let me begin this way by asking this question. What do you, why do you think Jesus came into the world? What do you think he came to do? Go ahead. Pardon me? Reconcile us back to the Father. Excellent answer. Yes. What else, what else is an answer to the question? What did he... Want, want to try? Eternal life. What else? Set up the coming of his kingdom. Set up the coming of his kingdom. Excellent. Keep it coming, people. Save our souls. Yep. Provide an example, Provide an example for how to live. Yes. I am shocked that I have not heard one answer yet. What, what's the thing he actually did? Like, died on the cross. There it is. Boom. Thank you. Now, interestingly enough, one answer I didn't hear was to make us holy. The fact of the matter is, when you read the New Testament, what you discover is, is that the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came into this world, and the reason he reconciles us to God through dying on the cross for our sins, granting us eternal life, is so that we would be holy. Interesting. Now, we're going to get to our text in a a moment, but just listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 4. He says... He chose us, that is, Jesus chose us in Him, listen to this, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. The purpose of redemption, the reason that God sent Jesus into the world was so that you and I would be made holy. And that's what Jesus is getting at in our text this morning as well. Now, our text is a very, very fascinating passage. It comes out of what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The high priestly prayer of Jesus is recorded in John chapter 17. And what we get to do when we read John chapter 17 is we get to eavesdrop on a conversation in the Trinity. Jesus 
is speaking to his father. Now, there are other occasions where Jesus speaks to his father, but this is unique because this is an extended conversation between Jesus and his father, and we get to hear what Jesus has to say. The other thing that's fascinating about this passage is that it comes right before Jesus goes to the garden where he's going to be betrayed and put on trial and ultimately uh, brought to the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he is about to die. Now, I have sat with people who know they're about to die, who know that their death is imminent, they're still cognitively aware, and they know that it's coming. And I can tell you, when you talk to people who are about to die, they have a very, very focused mind. The conversations they want to have when they know that they don't have much time left are about the important things. They're about the central things. They're about the things that really, really matter. They don't want to talk about frivolous things, like how the Jays are doing, or, or what's going on in politics, even though that stuff can be important. They want to know, they want to discuss the eternal matters, the things that are, are most important to them, that, are, that are, are closest to their heart. And here is Jesus having this conversation with his heavenly Father, about to go to the cross, and he talks about what matters most to him. And this is what he says it all boils down to, your holiness and my holiness. Verses 17 through 19. Listen to this. Jesus says to his Father, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now that word sanctified, it comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. And the gist of Jesus' whole prayer in John chapter 17 is, Father, please make the people that you have given me, make your children holy and keep them holy. That's what matters most to Jesus in your life. Now, please listen very, very carefully. Jesus' most important concern in your life is not that you will be happy. It's not that you will fulfill all your dreams and aspirations. It's not even that you will necessarily be able to use your gifts even for His glory in the kingdom. And believe it or not, it's not even that you would be good. A good person. No, no, no. It's that you would be holy. Sanctify them, he says, by the truth. Now, if that's important to Jesus, it should be important to us, don't you think? So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this concept of holiness as Jesus describes it in this passage. Okay, we're going to look at what it's not. We're going to look at what it is, what holiness is not, what holiness is, what it looks like, And then the source of it. Four things. What it's not, what it is, what it looks like, and then the source. That is, where do we get it? Okay? So, first of all, what holiness is not. Now, today, holiness is probably a bad word, eh? In most contexts. Because when you use the word holy, it's usually in something like holier than thou. (laughs) That person is, they're holier than thou. Or, oh man, you know, like, 
uh, Jim and Janet, they, they invited us over uh, for, for the evening, but they're, su- like, they're such holy rollers, we know it's going to be boring. Because, you see, typically what we associate with holiness is this concept of goodness, of, of moral righteousness. And if you're not a Christian and you think the word holy, what you think of is you think of, you think of people who are, are rigid, who are no fun, who never let loose and have a good time, and who are constantly looking down their noses at the unholy people. That's kind of how most non-Christians think about it. But, you know, Christians can be like this too because Christians have a version of holiness that, that is basically this idea of being like Jesus. But again, the interpretive grid for them is, well, being like Jesus means being good, being a good person, doing the right things, listening to the right music, speaking the right way, you know, Good people, Christians, a good Christian doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't go with girls who do, that kind of thing. But here's the problem with this definition of holiness. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, For them I sanctify myself. For them I make myself holy, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus says, For them I sanctify myself. Now, if holiness is being good, why in the world would Jesus have to sanctify himself? Why would he have to make himself holy? Jesus is perfect, right, in every way. He doesn't need that kind of sanctification. He cannot improve on his moral character. You know, there's, there's perfection, and then there's nothing past it, right? There's a place, in fact, where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, his accusers, and he says, who among you can prove me guilty of sin? And it's a rhetorical question because they all sit there and go, mm, yeah, none of us can. And that's the point, because this is Jesus. So holiness cannot simply mean moral goodness. It's, there's got to be something more. So that's, that's what it's not, okay? Point two, then, is what it is. Now, in order to understand holiness as the Bible understands holiness, you actually got to go back all the way to the Old Testament because there's a lot of talk of holiness in the Old Testament. And what you discover is, is that, that holiness is, is, is attributed to things, not just people. So you remember Jesus, or <laughs> Jesus, uh, Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, he sees this burning bush, right? And he goes up to the burning bush, and then God says, stop, take your shoes off, boy. You are on what? Holy ground. The ground was holy. Interesting. If you look at the uh, building of the tabernacle and the furnishing of the tabernacle, so this is all the furniture and stuff that gets put in the, in the tabernacle, there were all kinds of things put in this tabernacle. There were candlesticks, and there were altars, and there were wash basins, and there were chairs. And, and God says, these things are consecrated. These things are holy to me. That means that they're set apart for this purpose, that they be used for worship in the tabernacle. And so what you see more and more in the Old Testament as holiness is explained or or is described, that, that a thing that is holy is something that is set apart for a particular purpose. So this chair 
that is used in the tabernacle or in the temple is meant to be used only in the tabernacle or the temple. You're not supposed to, like, take it home and put your feet up on it while you watch TV. That's holiness, being set apart. Now, how do we, attri- how do we apply this to a human being? Okay, any of you guys familiar with uh, someone named Summer McIntosh? Well, you will be soon enough. Summer McIntosh is Canada's number one swimmer. She is a 16-year-old phenom who is breaking Canadian and world records all over the place. She is incredible, and she is planning to, well, she is touted to be sort of the next Michael Phelps at the next Olympics. Well, her desire, her goal, Her aspiration is to win gold at the next Olympics. That's the goal. And so what has she done? She has sanctified herself for that task. She has set herself apart for that goal, which means that for the next four years or whenever the next Summer Olympics, oh, next Summer Olympics might be next year. Okay, awesome. I won't get much work done next summer, but that's okay. We'll all be watching Summer McIntosh, who has set her life apart for the purpose of winning Olympic gold. And so that means that that everything about her life is centered around that goal. It affects everything. It affects her diet. She does not eat whatever she wants. It affects her lifestyle, what she, when she gets up in the morning and when she goes to bed at night, she has a very, very rigid schedule, very scheduled elite athletes. If you've ever been one, you know exactly what that's like. It even affects where you live. She had to move down to Florida so that she could train year-round with one of the best swimming coaches that has ever walked the earth. He might have been Michael Phelps' coach too. I'm not entirely sure about that, but it's, it's certainly possible. She wants to be in a climate that fits what she's doing. She wants to be with this this coach who is there to guide her and direct her. And that doesn't mean that Summer McIntosh doesn't do other stuff. She probably goes to the movie with friends once in a while. She might attend parties once in a while, sure. But, and she goes to school as far as I know. But here's the thing. If anything, if anything interferes with her goal, with the central purpose of her life. You know what she does? She kicks it. She doesn't let it remain part of her life. Years ago, during March Madness, you guys know what March Madness is? Big college basketball tournament. The best, the best yearly sporting event worth watching. Sorry, Mark, it's not the bass fishing pro-am or whatever it is you like. There was this great ad where this the, the, the speaker was speaking over the images, right? And it shows this kid um, doing, doing uh, wind sprints in a gym by himself. And it shows him uh, right, uh, getting up with the, when it's still dark out. His alarm goes off at 5.30 in the morning. And he gets up. It shows him walking past a house party and everybody going, come on over, man. He's like, hey, see you. And he's got his gym bag over his, over his arm. And it says, you've gotten up and done, wind spr- uh, done extra wind sprints after practice. You've gotten up before the sun. You've missed so many parties. Why? All so that you have an extra half step in overtime. So cool. Because he had sanctified himself for this goal that in, the, in March Madness, 
he was going to make it to the final four, or he was going to end up drafted in the NBA because he had sanctified himself for this goal. Do you understand? So, when Jesus says, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified, you know what he's saying? He's saying, everything I have done, coming into this world, living this life, all my teaching, all my miracles, all my suffering, all my, my walking and walking and walking and walking from this town to this town, all over Judea, all of it, and finally me going to the cross, it has all been for one thing your sanctification, your holiness. And if there is an obstacle that stands in the way of that, Jesus ditches it. You remember, some of you might remember that there's a place where, where Jesus tells his disciples, look, I have to go to the cross. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're going to arrest me and they're going to hang me on a cross and I am going to die. And Peter says, no, 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 don't. You'll never do that. And Jesus turns around and looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. This is one of his best friends. One of his best friends, one of his tightest buddies that he has spent the last three years with, nary a waking moment where they have been apart. And he says, you're not with me, you're against me. Get behind me, Satan. So holiness, friends, is... Holiness is a laser focus on the main thing. It's a total commitment to your objective. And the objective, friends, is not to be good. The objective is devotion to Jesus. That he is the center of your life. That he is the vortex that, that around which everything else revolves. Want an example of what that looks like? Let's look at what it looks like. Daniel, chapter 3, tells the story of a couple of friends of Daniel, three friends of Daniel. Some of you may be aware of three buddies of Daniel named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were three friends of Daniel, and they lived in Babylon, an ancient nation, many, many years ago. And they were Jews living in Babylon. And at one point, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of Babylon, said, you know what? Everybody is going to bow down to this God that I have created. And he made this big 90-foot tall statue, and he wanted everybody to bow down to it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were believers in the true God of, of Israel, of Yahweh. And they said, no, we can't do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, well, you see, I got an oven over here. Usually I'm making very nice pizza in it. But if you're not going to do what I tell you and bow down to my idol, all three of you are going into that oven. And listen to what they say. This is verses 17 through 19 of uh, Daniel chapter 3. Or this is 17 and 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your, from your majesty's hand. But, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Holiness for Daniel's friends was more important than life. 
being dedicated to their God and committing themselves entirely to him, that was more important even than their physical lives. They said, you know what? Our God, can, he can save us. He can deliver us if you throw us into that, into that furnace. And he will deliver us, by the way. But even if he doesn't, we are not serving your God. We will remain faithful to our own. If it's not bowing down to other gods, I got that covered. I don't have any statues around. I don't believe that, you know, there's a spirit in the trees or something. I, I believe in God and only God, and so I'm not worshiping idols, so I don't have to worry about that at all. Really? Maybe you want to succeed in your chosen profession, and you have to work such crazy hours that you don't have time for a devotional life. You don't have time to serve in your church community. You barely, if you're married or if you have kids, you barely have time for your spouse and your children because all you're doing is working. You can't serve. All you can do is make enough to feed your kids and throw it, throw it at them at the table and throw them in bed and then you go back to work and then you fall in bed and then you get up the next morning and you do it all over again 16 hours a day. 365 days a year, go, 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 go. But you don't have an idol? An idol is anything that is taking you away from that vortex of your life. If Jesus is the vortex of your life, if he is the center of your life around which everything else is supposed to revolve, then what do you mean you don't have time to get up and actually spend a bit of time with Jesus, either at the beginning of the day or the middle of the day or the end of the day? Frankly, I don't care when you call him. But to say I don't have time to call them, and yet you don't have any idols in your life, you're blind. You've got lots of idols. You've got one big one, apparently. Now, the job may not be the actual idol. The job might be the little idol that serves the bigger idol. Maybe the bigger idol is reputation. Well, if I'm killing it at work, then when I do on occasion end up at a party with some friends and they say, how's work going? I can say, I'm killing it. And they're like, you're the man. And I feel good. Or maybe it's, we got us a, a very uh, unstable economy right now. And who, I don't know if CPP is even going to be around by the time I retire. And so I got to sock it away so that, you know, I don't have to depend on anybody or my children or anything when I retire. And I, I got a certain lifestyle I need to maintain. And therefore, I got to make sure I got enough money in order to live the way I want to live. Maybe that's the idol. Maybe the idol is the Canadian dream. Oh, all you got a bunch of Redeemer students back, I think. Got lots of people in their 20s sitting in here. And all you get day after day on the news is mortgage prices, housing prices, interest rates. You'll never own a house. That's the Canadian dream, but it's so far away from you. And so you say, I'm going to sock it away. I don't have a dime to give to my church right now because I'm investing in my future and I'm putting every dime into that so that I can make that down payment. But you don't have any idols. <laughs> you know, it's not even that a bad thing is an idol. Sometimes it's good things that can become idols. You know, a couple, 
they want to get married, but they don't have much money. And they say, you know, it's wise for us to be stewardly with our money. Yes, it is wise to be stewardly with your money. And so they say, well, we'll live together before we get married. Like, why should you have an apartment and I have an apartment? You're paying that and I'm paying that. We're just blowing money like it's, like it's nothing. It would be far more convenient if we just lived together. We're committed and we plan to marry when we have enough money for the wedding or to get an apartment together or whatever. It's a good thing that has led you away from your Savior. That's what an idol can do. Some of you, perhaps, and actually I know that this is the case for some of you, actually, uh, social media, like you went to the cottage this summer and you had really bad reception and there's no Wi-Fi or whatever, and you're like, man, I, like, I have to walk to the, I got to walk to that one rock in Muskoka on the outcrop there and hold my phone up like this to be able to check my Instagram feed. So then you're like, I'm stuck. I guess I got four or five days without it at all. And you're like, man, I'm strangely calm. Well, because I'm on vacation. And you come home and you do a little experiment and you realize, wow, for the time that I'm not on social media constantly following what's going on in the world and how everything is burning and falling apart and everybody hates each other and uh, I'm, I'm less angry and I'm less anxious. But if someone like me comes along and says, you know what you need to do? You need to just cut that stuff out. Get off it. You're like, ah, I can't do it. <laughs> I know I want to do it. I know I ought to do it. But I can't do it. But I don't have any idols in my life. See, to be sanctified, friends, is to to be so committed to that one thing that if anything, even if it's a good thing, anything stands in the way of you progressing in the one thing, you push it aside. You say no. It's to obey whether you want to or not whether you understand or not. Imagine if Summer McIntosh is down there in Florida with this great coach, and she's finishing up her practice, she thinks, and the coach says, all right, you want the Olympics? Yes, I want the Olympics. You want a world record? Yes, I want a world record. You want five golds? Yes, I want five golds. All right, give me five more laps. And Summer McIntosh goes, what? I don't know. I mean, I, what's five more laps going to do? Really? I'm tired. I'm just not into it. I don't feel like it. The coach is going to look at her and say, I've, I've produced 10 world champions before you. You are 16 years old. You don't know anything about what it takes to be a world champion. And you're going to tell me when I say do five more laps, mm, you sure this is necessary? Do you want it or don't you? If you do, you've got to commit and give yourself to me and trust me. And that's what Jesus is calling all of us to do, to trust him. See, ultimately, to be holy really is to be like Christ. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, all his mind, all his strength. But there's the rub, right? All, all of it? I got to give him all of it. He wants all of it. I got to be honest to you, friends. I don't want to give him all of it. 
There are times when, when, when I don't want holiness if that's what holiness requires. There are times when I want other things more, and so I need help. And you probably do too. But Jesus doesn't call us to something and then says, now do it. Figure it out. He knows that we don't have the power, okay? Look at verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say sanctify them by their willpower, by them sucking it up, by them finding it within themselves to want this and to go after it. No, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about this word. And so what he's saying is, is the message of the Bible is the truth, is the thing that will sanctify this. Well, okay, well, what's the message of the Bible? It's pretty simple, actually. As you read the Bible, you discover, if you go from beginning to the end, you discover that there is a holy God who created the world out of nothing, simply by his power, and he did it out of love. He wanted his love to overflow beyond his own nature into something creative. And so he created the universe and he created you and he created me so that we could be in relationship of love with him and that love that he is, God is love, it would overflow in this like never-ending, infinitely growing and building sort of experience of his glory and his majesty and his goodness. But as you read, you learn that that. What we were called to do was to live in holiness, meaning dedicating ourselves entirely to Him. But, but our first parents said, I think I'm going to live for myself instead. And they rebelled against Him. And every human being since has this problem with us in our DNA, in our very nature, which means we come into this world in a state of rebellion. We're just like our first parents, wanting to go our own way rather than live on the grace of God and live under the warmth of His love. We want to run the show. And as you keep reading, you learn that what He expects from His people is right there summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's a guide for how we are to live. But when you read it, outside of Him, it's very depressing. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And you say, man, it's like, don't, 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 don't. And my brain and my heart and my soul are all oriented towards what I want, I will do. And so when I read, don't, 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 all I want to do is do what he says don't do. Very interesting. Psychologists will tell you that that is a part of human nature. John MacArthur has this great story where he tells, he's a preacher guy from California, He says that uh, for years and years and years, um, peach growers would, uh, they would take their seconds, the peaches that they weren't going to sell at market or whatever, and they would just pile them up at the end of the rows that were on often right at, at the road. And people could drive by and they could stop along the side of the road and they could pick up peaches and carry on. And he said, I drove by those things all the time. Never once did I have any interest in picking them up. But then, the state of California, because, you know, war on fun and safety is everything, said, you can't do that anymore. And he said, I couldn't believe it. I just had this urge to get a bucket and drive up to one of these piles of peaches and just take them, simply because I was told I shouldn't. 
And so we live in this depressed state where, where God has requirements and expectations of us, but when we look at those requirements and expectations, we say, I don't want to. And the Bible says that, that because of that, there is a judgment that rests upon us. And it's very dark and it's very gloomy, but you can't stop there, you see, because you need to keep reading right through. What does verse 19 say? It says, for them I sanctify myself. You see, the story continues that, that God sent the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the flesh as a human, as you and me, in our weakness. He set himself apart. He said, I sanctify myself. He didn't just sanctify himself at the moment before the cross. He sanctified himself at the moment before time where the Father stood in glory and said, to save my beloved, someone has to go and die for them. And he looked at his son and he said, I will do it. Jesus sanctified himself and he came into this world and he went to the cross. He was set apart to make us holy and he was separated from the Father so that we could be separated for the Father. You see? For them, he said, I do this. For them, for you, for me. The people with those hearts that say, eh, I don't want to. Now, here's the trick. And it's not a trick. I'm calling it a trick, but it's not a trick, really. Here's the thing. The more you meditate on, the more you think about, the more you gaze at the beauty of this Jesus separating himself from the Father, letting himself experience eternal judgment for our sins so that you could be separated for the Father. You see, the more that sinks into you, the more holy you will become. It's true. Because your heart gets changed from, eh, I don't want to, to, how can I not want to? He is so beautiful. He is so glorious. He is so perfect. And he is so sacrificial, sacrificing, that I cannot help to want to give myself to him. Let me close with some words from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in England during the 1800s, a very eloquent man. And he says this. He says, the best preaching is we preach Christ crucified. The best living is we are crucified with Christ. The best person is a crucified person. The more we live beholding our Lord's unutterable griefs, and understanding how he has fully put away our sin, the more holiness we shall produce. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, where we can view heaven and earth and hell all moved by his wondrous passion, the more noble our lives will become. Nothing puts life into people like a dying Savior Get close to Christ and carry the remembrance of him about you from day to day and you will do right royal deeds. Come, let us slay sin for Christ was slain. Let us bury all our pride for Christ was buried. Let us rise to newness of life for Christ has risen. Let us be united with our crucified Lord in his one great object. Let us live and die with him 
and then every action of our lives will be beautiful. Let's pray. Make our lives beautiful, O Lord. We want to be holy, Lord. Set apart for you, our master, ready to do your will. O God, give us such a vision of our Savior Jesus who set himself apart in order that we could be saved from our sin. Get us so captivated by that that we too set ourselves apart. Anything that stands in the way of knowing Him and serving Him, Father, may we kick it and kill it. May we run from it. so that we might know the abundant life that he has promised us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we do have an opportunity for questions. If anybody wants to ask one, we'll take a minute or two uh, before we go to the table. Um, Here's a great question. Uh, a Christ, can a Christian be involved in a sport or vocation that by definition is fairly all-consuming in good conscience? So like Summer McIntosh in her Olympic dreams. Or is it a matter of setting up strong fences to make sure that God stays number one? Uh, I would say the answer that you gave is, or that you gave, <laughs> answers your question. I think, I think it is a danger, but it is possible. So, um, it's very, very hard for people who are in elite everything or elite anything. It doesn't have to be just sports. It could be music. It could be, you know, medicine. Uh, it could be law. I have a nephew who works for a massive, one of those, like, you know, when you, if any of you have ever watched Suits, he works for one of those types of firms, okay? Downtown New York, Manhattan. They expect lots of hours and stuff like that. But he picked, he actually picked a law firm that was a little more reasonable. But he, he works like in the New York Times building and does all that stuff. And then when you're at the elite level of, of a lot of things, um, there is a danger that those things can be all consuming and can be idolatrous. I don't have an easy answer for how to compensate for that or accommodate for that. I, I once, years ago, read an interview with the Stahl family. Some of you know who the Stahls are. All these hockey-playing hockey family, and they were Christians. And it was fascinating how they, uh, they, they tried to work around all the expectations for their kids. Like, if you're playing high-level hockey, like, it's crazy where you have to go and how often you have to go and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things they did was they really made... Um, uh, family devotional life a big part of their lives to compensate for the times where they were traveling and they weren't able to be at their home church and stuff like that. It, it's hard. I, I'm not saying it's impossible. I don't think God is saying Christians should not aspire or should not uh, pursue elite levels of a variety of um, vocations 
or opportunities. I, I don't think that he's saying that, but he's saying, listen to my sermon. <laughs> and, and be careful. Like, you've got to be careful. Uh, and you've got to always be searching your heart for those things that may have cropped up as an idol, and you've got to always be, a rege- again, returning to the cross so that, so that love of Christ is the, the primary love. Look, it, this is... Uh, I'm, uh, my problem is, is I always want to, like, start preaching again, but I'll just say this. Like, think about this. This is, this is, this is the question in life. This is the question. Who will matter most to you? Because you see, you can be a parent. And I'm, I'm just finishing raising my kids, so to speak, right? All of mine are now coming out of their teen years. And I could tell you, man, there are times when you are up against it with a kid and they want some, to do something and it goes against your conscience and you love Jesus and you think that Jesus would not be pleased if you said yes, but, but if you're like me, you just hate it when your kids are mad at you. And the, the, the urge to give in is like almost overwhelming. It really is. Or you're, you're young and single and you'd love to be in a relationship and for some reason... You can't meet a nice Christian boy or girl and it's driving you bonkers. And then you, at the grocery store or on one of these apps, you run into this really, really nice person. In fact, they're nicer than some of the Christians you've been on dates with, but they're not really interested in God. They tolerate God. They're like, yeah, you, he's your thing. Cool. I'm not going to get in the way of that, but I'm not getting, I'm going to read the paper on Sunday morning. I'm not getting up for church. Like, I'm just going to be honest. And you're like, oh. I really, really don't want to be alone. I want to be with this person, but they're not a believer. And the Bible says that I must not be unequally yoked. (sighs) The urge is like almost overwhelming. But that is life. Like, that's it. If you don't ever want to come back to this church because the sermons are too long and I always preach two when we have question time, Please remember this one thing. The Christian life boils down to who do you love? Who do you love? And the reason I hope you come here week after week after week, or any church, not just this one, but the reason you come week after week after week is because you are prone to wander. You can feel it. You are prone to leave the God you love. You know that's in you. And so you come here every week and you say, take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. 